0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled "Built for Glory: Meeting God and Finding Freedom through the Book of Exodus." For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Exodus twenty-two twenty-one through twenty-four and Exodus twenty-three nine. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. We are in the book of Exodus. We've been in the book of Exodus for several months, many months, and we're going verse, ber- verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book. And uh, we've just finished up the Ten Commandments, and then we get to these weird laws, and we've labeled this these next couple weeks, and last week started it, um, protecting the powerless. That these laws, if you don't really understand them when you get in them, they're very weird. They seem very weird. They seem very unorthodox, unfamiliar to us. And if you take them out of context, they um, they can just sound really weird, okay? They can sound really weird and kind of be a defeater belief for Christianity. Well, look how archaic these laws are. But when you really get down in them and you study them, you realize that's not the case. Now, let me pray and then I'm going to jump into it this morning. I I get ahead of myself. So, Father, we thank you for your work in our lives, in our church, in our city. We thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for being resurrected to the right hand of the Father. Um, We thank you that we're still here 2,000 years later after many people declared uh, that Christianity was over, that, that religion would be finished, that God was dead. Um, we thank you that we serve a God who was killed, but he was also resurrected, and he still lives today, and he still works in our city, in our life. And we pray that you would speak to us, think through my mind, uh, speak through my vocal cords, help me say your words clearly, and would you help us hear your words as well. Uh, Again, like we said a lot this morning, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in Exodus 22. If you flip open your Bible, you can find it there. Uh, You can find it in your app. You can find it. There's Bibles on the floor if you don't have one. Um, But kind of here's what I'm, here's where we're going to get to this morning. Have you ever watched a movie and totally missed the point? I know that I have, usually I'm watching it and I'm thinking, this is such a weird movie. Like, I think it was The Arrival, this new movie came out, was the last time that happened to me. I'm like, what is going on? This is a weird movie. And it's usually these types of movies that kind of create some, some discussion amongst your friends, especially if you've got a, a, a movie buff or two for a friend, and somebody brings the movie up, and you're like, that movie was terrible. That movie was ridiculous. That movie was so weird. Hated that movie. And then your movie buff friend, right? Your movie scholar, you're right? right he, he goes or she goes off on how great the movie was and interprets it for you in a way that you totally missed, Right? One little line, one little thing, and it kind of flips it on its head. And what's cool is when you hear that, or now you can just cheat and you can just Google it, right? Watch a weird movie, Google it, somebody loved it, okay? And there's some deep meaning that you, that you missed, right? And what's cool is if you, once you understand the deep meaning, once you understand kind of the trick or whatever this thing was pointing to, the purpose, the meaning behind it, if you watch it again surprisingly, the movie actually becomes a whole lot better than it was the first time you watched it, because you get it, because you understand it, and it might even have a chance of becoming your favorite movie, because now you get what they were trying to communicate. You get what the point was. Well, I'm hoping for us, if you've been with us for a while, that our time in the book of Exodus will serve such a purpose. So many people think that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the God of the New Testament namely Jesus. They think the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful, angry God that is capricious and petty. Many have even called him a moral monster. But as we've been going verse by verse through the book of Exodus, we have learned that God is in fact kind, benevolent, and extremely patient with people who refuse to love him as creator, as sustainer, as giver of life. They refuse to trust him as their redeemer, and they refuse to worship him as their savior. And we're going to get another glimpse of that today. And I do have a time limit today, all right? It's already clicking on my watch. So this is probably why you're at the 9 a.m. All right? You have a guaranteed out, right? We got another service coming. It's true. Well, today we're only looking at four verses. Ha, see? That's how I get you. We're only looking at four verses in Exodus 22, uh, and they start uh, in verse 22, okay? And these verses give us a good look at the heart and the character of the God of the Old Testament, namely Yahweh, okay? And let's take a look at them. We're going to start in verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now, I doubt these are the verses that you were expecting to hear on Resurrection Sunday. Unless you've been around here for a while, then you you don't expect anything on Resurrection Sunday. This is probably not going to be your traditional Easter sermon. I'm not going to go, you know, and prove, you, prove to you the historical facts of the resurrection. I've done that in years past. You can go back and, and look up Easter from years past. And I go through all kinds of historical evidences for uh, the reliability of the resurrection accounts. I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm going to stay in our text in Exodus. Uh, because I believe that the seeds of the resurrection are in these verses this morning. In fact, once we understand the heart and the character of the one who is saying such things, the reason for the incarnation, the reason for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ begin to make a lot more sense. So let's take a look and drill down in this text a little bit. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Well, what is a sojourner? Let's answer that question first. I think we're all like, feel, woo, good, because I have not been oppressing any sojourners lately, <laughs> right? Well, in our language today, a sojourner is a legal immigrant or refugee, okay? In this time, uh, the, pe- the Hebrew people, when they left Egyptian slavery, they left with all kinds of nationalities with them, right? Other slaves saw God deliver them from the oppressive hand of Egypt, and so these other nationalities went and kind of converted to the, the Jewish faith, okay? And so they weren't Hebrew people by birth, but they, they had become legal worshipers of Yahweh. They, they converted, and now they're, they're worshiping God. So uh, this is a person who has left their country of origin and desires to become a resident of a new country, Right? And historically, sojourners are people without much legal protection. And obviously, that leaves them vulnerable to exploitation. They are generally powerless in a new society. Think about it. When a person moves to our country or if we to move to another country, oftentimes we get there, we're not citizens. We're not, we don't have the same protection, the same legal rights as citizens do. Much of the time, they don't speak the language, so they're already at a disadvantage, right? No matter their education or experience in their home country, they usually start out doing menial labor for low wages. Um, I was friends with some um, immigrants from Croatia about a decade ago, and when, when they, fle- they, they fled persecution to our country. And he was a doctor there, and he comes here, and he's, and he's working menial labor, menial labor as a janitor. Um, all of his education, all of it was really meaningless once he got here and got into this country. They start over oftentimes from ground zero. They're often considered the lowest class of society. And this is interesting because here we have God, the supposed moral monster, the God of the Old Testament, interested in their welfare. Yahweh is, isn't just saying be good to one another, be good to our people. He's saying be good to the foreigners among you, be good to the sojourners among you, be good to the refugee and the immigrant. Do not take advantage of them. Now, to appreciate the revolutionary nature of this, we we must understand the cultural context that this was written in 3,500 years ago. See, at this time, the gods, you could call them the strong gods, The gods at this time dealt with the powerful. You read ancient accounts of worship. The gods always spoke with kings. They spoke and dealt with the powerful of the society. We saw this as we studied the first chapters of Exodus. Pharaoh was a god. He believed himself a god himself as a king. And he also, and all the other gods of Egypt, went through him. He was kind of their mediator. He was their point man to deal with the people. And this kind of, if you think of it in just a human mentality, human way, humanistic way, this makes perfect sense. If you want to kind of change a company, you start from the top down. You deal with the CEO and then the new vision and the new strategy begins to trickle down the organizational ladder. If you want change, you start with the powerful and you work your way down. Well, in this mindset, the gods, little g, gods only dealt with kings, rulers, priests. The gods of Egypt and all of the other world religions at the time only had time for the powerful. But here we have 3,500 years ago in the midst of that cultural climate, the God of the Old Testament shows that he is different from all the other gods. He is interested in the poor and the powerless. In fact, as these verses go on, we saw there that he is interested not just in the refugee, not just in the sojourner. He says, immigrants, refugees, widows, orphans have his ear. That he is listening to their cries for help. And if the people of Israel mistreat them, God will deal with them. He says he'll hand them over to the sword. He'll give them over to his enemies, to their enemies, I'm sorry. Now listen to the the New new American Commentary. This is how Douglas Stewart um, explains what's going on here. This is what he says. The wording here is something like the equivalent of saying, I simply will not tolerate any exploitation of anyone if it happens and is serious enough particularly to the point they cry out to me, I will ruin you in response. That's what the God of the Bible says. It's the God of the Old Testament. He's not like other gods. He's out to protect the weak. He's out to protect the powerless. He's interested in their welfare and their well-being. And these verses here show us his heart and his character for the outsider. God is kind and just. But that word justice, it gets thrown around a lot these days. Just what is justice? Well, I think at its base, its foundation, justice is people, human beings, get, getting what they deserve, getting their due. And from this text, God shows us that justice has two sides to it. Justice always involves protecting and Punishing. On one side, justice involves protecting people from being taken advantage of, from being killed or stolen from, specifically those who cannot defend themselves, those who are without power or without resources. God says one half of justice is protecting the weak, guarding them, keeping them safe. But on the other side, God says do not wrong anyone right if you wrong them if you take advantage of them if you commit injustice then someone must you must be punished for it right you must be punished for it do no wrong to anyone expect the the except, especially the powerless but it also involves the appropriate punishment for those who have taken advantage of someone god says if you mistreat one of these powerless people i will hear their cries And I will punish you for it. That's the other side of justice. See, this is where we see the appropriateness of the wrath of God, right? It's not bad news that God is a God of wrath. When he's protecting the powerless and someone's trying to mistreat or oppress someone and you stand up and you bring justice to that oppressor and that's the wrath of God being poured out, that is not capricious. That is not unkind. In fact, that's the most loving thing to do in the moment. And what's interesting, this concept of God being just and God being, he protecting the powerless and punishing those who, who violate that, it's not just here. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, it's sprinkled everywhere through the Old Testament. Let me give you a few examples. One, we heard it in our call of worship this morning from Psalm 146. We have the scripture up on the screen. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who, look, executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. Here we have protecting the powerless and punishing the wicked, punishing those who are taking advantage of. Or in Deuteronomy 10, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And he says this, look at this command. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And for those of us who are unaware of what this meant, or even in that time and age, what does that mean for us? The prophet Micah let them know in no uncertain terms. Here he says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice. Now listen, that's more than just don't be a lawbreaker. Do justice means to be actively pursuing justice for the powerless in society, to be working for them, to be helping and supporting them. He says to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. See, the Old Testament God is the powerful God who cares for the powerless. Revolutionary, unheard of, in this time. In fact, if you value the poor, if you value the powerless, you don't just esteem the rich and the powerful, that value that you have in you, you might think it just popped up and got there. But for thousands of years of human history, that didn't exist. And you got that from Christianity. You got that from Judaism. That was bred into us, literally, that was taught into us and bred into us that God is the God of the powerless. Still, there's world religions out there that abuse the poor. And and look, with contempt on the poor. Christianity is not one of them. Judaism was not one of them. Our God is the God who's powerful and yet cares for the powerless. And his people are meant to be people who care about the poor and the powerless. But this is where human nature (laughs) is displayed so prominently in the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament, many of us if we went to church, we kind of heard the hero stories and we thought the guys in the Old Testament were heroes and they stood up for what's right and they always did what's right. And that's kind of how sometimes it gets displayed in Sunday school with the little flannel graph. But that is not the reality. There is not one man in the Old Testament that is not marred in some way, that does not sin in some way and his reputation ruined, is ruined in some way. And though God calls his people to protect the power powerless, they fail to do so Often. And we think we see things in the Old Testament start to get really ugly. God's people completely disobey him. See, God sets this principle up. He says, seek social justice, protect the weak. But if you refuse and instead you begin to ignore them or you begin to take advantage of them, I will hear their prayers and I will punish you. Now there's two reasons God's saying this. First, We've already seen, he, this is his character. This is his nature. God cares for the powerless. But he also tells them this in verse 21. Don't wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Look, for, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What's he saying? He's saying, don't forget that you we're in Egypt. See, God cares for the powerless, and they were at, at one time completely powerless under the oppressive hand of Egypt. And God stepped in and redeemed them and rescued them with no help of their own. They didn't pull themselves up by their moral bootstraps, they didn't campaign and figure out a way out of Egypt. God redeemed them and God rescued them. And God here is telling them, remember that you yourselves were sojourners, refugees, slaves in Egypt, and I heard your cry for help, and I rescued you, and I punished your oppressors. I annihilated the Egyptian army. And he's saying, do not. Now that you were powerless, and you became powerful, do not become another Egypt. And my professor in seminary taught me one time that there's this, Concept that's kind of, it's called redemption and lift. Redemption and lift. And what that means is many times when people embrace the faith of Christianity, there's a lot of moral principles that are in Christianity and it kind of, you know, there's a sense where if you believe it, it does make you into a more moral and responsible person. But what and that what that naturally does, if you're if you're you know a harder worker, you're more committed, you're 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 you know you you have a higher character, you're probably going to succeed at work. You're probably going to, to be better off, you're probably gonna rise the corporate ladder in some way. So as we are redeemed, sometimes our station in life gets lifted, and we can become more wealthy, we can have more power, we can have more esteem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the warning here is if that happens. Don't forget where you came from and don't become another Egypt who now oppresses the powerless, who looks down at the powerless and says, why can't you get your act together? Why can't you figure it out? Why can't you get a job or keep a job? Don't become another Egypt. Don't become another group of people who oppress, ignore, and take advantage of the weak. And if you do, here's the threat. I will do to you what I did to the Egyptians. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you see this is exactly what happened to the people of Israel. They left the God who loves the powerless, and they went to the powerful gods of the nations. The nations that promise wealth, the nations that promise more Uh, I mean, sexual promiscuity, the nations that promise you can do whatever you want with your life. Those other nations that are a little easier to work with. They left the God of the Bible. They left Yahweh. They served these other gods. And what happened? They began to ignore the cries of the poor. They begin to neglect and oppress the widow and the orphan once again. They chased after gods, other gods, and they began acting like the surrounding nations of the world. And then God judged them for it. Now, what this event this, this goes back and forth. It's not just a wham wham bam thing. It goes bath, back and forth over hundreds of years where finally God has had it so much that God divorces, he says. He divorces his people. He divorces Israel for their oppression of the poor. He, he allows the surrounding nations to do exactly what he promises in this passage. Babylon, the Babylonian Empire invades, takes them off into Babylonian exile. And then they spend 400 years without hearing from God. 400 years of darkness. 400 years of silence from God. But as I said earlier, that in this text, there's the seeds of the resurrection. There's seeds of hope here. See, God is saying that he is the God of the powerless. And so God's next move is, is just absolutely amazing. There's really no other word for it. God, Scripture tells us, exists. He's eternal. He never had a beginning. And He exists co-eternal with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's a trinity in Himself. He's a community. One God, three persons. So community and love is central to the whole universe. Okay? Okay. And from the beginning of time, God had this plan when He created all things, when He spoke everything in existence and time was created and space was created and the galaxy threw into existence. And when God spoke everything into existence, He had a plan for one day, roughly 2,000 years ago, for the sun to become human and enter into this universe, into, enter into our atmosphere. And so God here after 400 years of silence, after his people oppress the poor and the powerless, and he divorces them, God sends Jesus, his own son. Look at this. To be born into a poor and powerless family. The Jewish people were under Roman rule. They were still subjugated. They were still being oppressed. And Jesus is born a Jew, and not a religious leader, not one of the leaders, political leaders, one of the powerful leaders of Israel. Listen to this. Jesus comes into the womb of a virgin, a poor virgin. They don't have the money to to buy a house, to buy a room. He's a member of the lowest class in society. That's how God enters into our story. Jesus leaves his home in heaven, his home in eternity with God, his perfect existence with God to come and experience the vulnerability and the pain that the most powerless in society feel. feel. This is one of the reasons I love Christianity so much. I don't know if I could serve a God who was absent of pain, who was just powerful and just ruled with an iron fist and just told us what to do. And that's not the God of Christianity. The God of Christianity is the God who's felt pain he's felt vulnerability he's felt what it feels like to be powerless amongst us and scripture and history tells us that jesus was just like his father in heaven he was the exact representative of god the father in heaven listen jesus wasn't god 2.0 okay he wasn't the better version oh man when we came out with that God 1.0 in the Old Testament, he was really angry. We need to upgrade. Let's send the nice version of God, right? That wasn't Jesus. He wasn't a kinder, gentler version of Yahweh. Jesus said himself that he does nothing except what God tells him to do. Jesus simply continued the work of God that God was doing in the Old Testament. In fact, if we can pull this text up in Luke chapter four, 18 through 19. Actually, I'm going I'm to flip over there. Luke chapter four. This is when Jesus begins his ministry. Okay? He grows up in abject poverty 30 years or so and he begins his public ministry. He stands up and it's one of his first public sermon, maybe his first public sermon, as it were. And he quotes, listen what he does. He quotes from Isaiah in the Old Testament. So Jesus' first work of his ministry is to quote the Old Testament, okay? And look what he's saying here. Chapter 4, verse 18 of Luke. He says this, the spirit of the Lord of God is upon me. Okay, Third member of the Trinity. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He's settled me. He's set me apart to what? Proclaim good news to the poor. That's the first thing he says. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus came to preach good news. What does that mean? That's the gospel. He came to preach good news to the poor to the captive, to the blind, to the oppressed. That was them at that time, and that is us right now, that we are spiritually poor, we are spiritually bankrupt, we are spiritually oppressed, we are spiritually captive, and we need to be delivered from that. And Jesus, continuing the work of of God of the Old Testament, says, that's why I've showed up, that's why I'm here, to set you free, to deliver you, to preach good news to the poor. See, God has always cared about the poor and the powerless. Jesus was just continuing that work and physically embodying it. He was proof positive that you could touch and hear and see that God cared about the poor and the powerless. How do I know? Yeah, he feeds us, but bad things happen. How do I know God cares? Because he became one of them. Looking at the classes of society, he chose the poorest and the lowest to enter into it. He lived amongst us as one. But you know what? The people of Jesus' days, he stands up and says this, they, the, the elite of society, the powerful of society, the religious society, they covered their ears. And they refused to hear it. Just like the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And I bet many of us have the same attitude. I bet many of us rarely even think about seeking justice for the powerless. We're far too busy with our own problems and seeking after our own happiness and moving our way up the corporate ladder. And those of us who have worked really hard and, and we've kind of got out of some of that, uh, you know, got, maybe we've worked our way out of po- poverty, maybe we came up in a really difficult part of town where, where you know, education wasn't valued and we got our degree and we worked our way out, we be, can begin to either ignore the cries of the poor or completely just look at them and say, just get your act together. Just suck it up and pull yourself up by, the, by your bootstraps. Now you might be thinking, oh, here we go. Here comes the guilt trip. But the guilt trip, it's not coming. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. What's coming is something much better than guilt. See, in Exodus, we saw the rule was basically seek justice for all or I will bring justice on your heads. See, Martin Luther King said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Where do we think he got that? Right? He got that from Scripture. He got that from the God, and specifically, really, the God of the Old Testament. He loved to quote Amos. That was one of his most powerful sermons is quoting Amos. God here is saying, we protect the powerless. And for those of us who feel powerless, that's good news for us. That's good news. Well, what about those who ignore the powerless? What about those who maybe even oppress the powerless. God says his justice is coming. Now that might not sound like good news for us. I want to kind of ask just a diagnostic question this morning. Would there be any among us who would deny the accusation that we often ignore the powerless? How much time do you spend with the most vulnerable of our society? How much of your money do you use to help them? If you see the poor on the side of the street do you immediately classify them as thieves as crooked as oh he's probably making 30 grand a year this is probably his stick right it's it's his thing Do you view the immigrant, the refugee, the unborn child, the orphan, the widow as a nuisance to society? Or do you view them as people deserving of protection made in the image of God with dignity, value, and worth? And listen, this is not a partisan issue either. It cuts down the middle of both Republican and Democratic values. And the problem is, honestly, the problem is we're selfish. We close our ears to the cries of the poor when it might cost us some of our comfort. Well, for that, this is harsh maybe, for that we deserve judgment. Justice to the oppressed means judgment for the oppressor or the one who's ignoring it. But when Jesus quoted from Isaiah 61, here's why it's not a guilt trip. Listen, when, when that Luke 4 right there, I said he was quoting from Isaiah 61. It's very interesting what Jesus does. He doesn't quote the whole passage. In fact, he doesn't even quote the, the full sentence from Isaiah 61. He stopped short. And I'm, I'm going to put them side by side. Oh right, there they are. Boom. You can see this. Let's read Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favor. Woo! Good news for the powerless. He leaves something out. Look, look, look in Isaiah. This is what he's quoting. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Interesting. There's two sides of justice, protecting the powerless and punishing the oppressor. And Jesus, when he stands up and gives the opening account of his sermon, he leaves that whole part out and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, why is that the case? This is why. Jesus doesn't say that part because he didn't come to bring vengeance. He came to bear vengeance. He didn't come to bring the wrath of God. He came to absorb the wrath of God. So the oppressor and the oppressed can be set free. So the oppressor and the oppressed can have good news. So the oppressor and the oppressed can be delivered and have freedom and have new life and have resurrection. Jesus doesn't just show us what God is like. He doesn't just show us what we should be like. He's not just a good moral example for us. Jesus is also, listen to this, our substitute. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus takes our place. He lived the perfect life. He never oppressed anyone. No one. Right? We're always working our way up the ladder. And As soon as we get one more notch up, we're looking down on those underneath us right? And when you're looking down on people, you never see really what's above you. You never see God. You never see his glory. Jesus never does that. He lives the perfect life. But then Jesus also, listen, takes the punishment that the oppressor deserves. Because all of us, we've been oppressed. Many of us, we felt poor. We felt powerless. But when we get a little bit of power, we also oppress and we look down and we violate We take advantage and we ignore. And Jesus, his death frees us as oppressors. His life earns the perfect righteousness. He always protected the powerless. His death earns perfect freedom for those who take advantage, those who've taken advantage. Jesus fulfills both sides of the justice of God for us. He fulfills the law's commands and he satiates the just wrath of God towards us because of our injustice. In Christ, because of Jesus, God is not angry with us. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. God's face is smiling towards you. God loves you. God protects you. God wants literally to scoop scoop you up in your arms, redeem you, in his arms, redeem you, rescue you, and pull you in like a loving father. All because of Jesus. I hope you believe that this morning. You know what this text also shows us? For those of you who have believed that, For those of you who have put your faith in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, one of the evidences that you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus is how you feel and how you treat the poor and the powerless in our world today. Listen to this quote from a book called Generous Justice a best-selling author and Manhattan pastor, Timothy Keller. To the degree that the gospel shapes your self-image, you will identify with those in need. You will see their tattered clothes and think, all of my righteousness, all of my good deeds is a filthy rag. But in Christ, we can be clothed in his robes of righteousness. When you come upon those who are economically poor, you cannot say to them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you certainly did not do that spiritually. Jesus intervened for you and you cannot say, I won't help you because you got yourself into this mess since God came to earth, moved into your spiritually poor neighborhood as it were and helped you even though your spiritual problems were your own fault. In other words, when Christians who understand the gospel see a poor person, they realize they're looking in a mirror. Their hearts must go out to him or her without an ounce of superiority or indifference. This is how the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes the way we view the poor and the powerless. And you know what? As I was thinking about it this week. Jesus in Matthew 5, he gives the Beatitudes... And his, the Beatitudes, they're all for the poor and the powerless. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, who those, they, who, those who realize that they're spiritually bankrupt and they need him, that, that the kingdom of God is for them. He says this, the meek will inherit the earth. The meek, it's the powerless, the gentle. Now we know he's not talking about our society today because the meek get ran over, the meek get trampled. The meat get overlooked, but what he's talking about is this: the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the birth of the new kingdom of the powerless. The seeds of the resurrection. When when Jesus was resurrected, right? This is the gentle becoming king. This is the powerless. Becoming king. And ultimately, we won't see that. We get a little glimpse of that inside the church, inside the kingdom, where we value meekness and we value humility and we value gentleness. But ultimately, we won't see that until Jesus Christ, the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ, comes back and sets up his kingdom on this earth, and all of us get resurrected bodies, and this whole earth gets resurrected and renewed and restored, and the meek will inherit the earth. This is the gospel. I pray that you would believe it and put your hope in it this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for writing this story. We thank you for entering into this story. We thank you for who you are, your character, your nature. You're not like other gods. You're not like us. You care about the poor and the powerless. And we confess our need for you this morning. We confess that we often feel poor and powerless and pitiful. But Father, when we get an ounce of power, when we get an ounce of glory, when we get an ounce of wealth, many times we oppress those underneath us. We ignore their cries. We look down upon them. And for that, we deserve your justice. We deserve your judgment. But Jesus takes our place. And so we put our full trust and our full weight and our full faith in him this morning. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for your life, for your death, for your resurrection. As we come to your table this morning as baptized believers, we come and we eat this meal of the new kingdom, this meal for the powerless. The bread that was broken is your body, the blood, the wine that's here was your blood. We eat it and we remember you and we look forward to your coming kingdom of the powerless. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.